If you're just joining us today, and whether it's your first time or you've been out a few weeks, we just finished up a sermon series on the uh, vision and mission of this church. And the, the vision is that this church desires to be a place to belong and a place to know God. The mission is becoming followers of Jesus who recover their lives, reimagine their purpose, and refresh their world. And over the last 10 months, we've purposely been doing something maybe without you realizing it. Um, we've been trying to talk about those first two parts of our mission, that we want to be a the kind of place, the kind of church where people are learning to get back the thing that they've lost, maybe, and that is their lives. Um, we were purposely trying to do that for several months. And then we started this whole sermon series on, on Jesus where we were trying to help inspire the imagination of how you can maybe reimagine your purpose in this world, that you're not just a person who pushes paper or punches in numbers. Um, you're not just a person who clocks in and clocks out, and that's kind of the life you've, you have to live. You actually are a person who's been called to have like a purpose to it. I don't mean like go join in ministry somewhere always. I mean like just purpose to your life. You read Jesus, he inspires you. And what's been really interesting for the last year and a half is all the stories that have come along the way, especially around those, those first two aspects of our mission. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of people who have like rediscovered Jesus here. Um, you've, you've come and told me about it. People in this room who said um, all these guarantees that he was making, I thought those were for other people. And yet here I am finding my heart strangely warmed. Those of you that even say like, like I identify as atheist, I identify as agnostic, I'm not really sure where I identify, but I know this. I know that when you're talking about Jesus, something in me is rumbling. I've heard those things. I've heard you talk about how like you're finding new purpose that you thought it was simply about showing up to worship, going home, surviving during the week, and then trying to get on with your life. And you're going, wait a second, maybe there's more. And that's exciting. It's exciting to know that you can actually come to church, and it's not that we're offering magic here. We're just talking about Jesus, and we're trying to strip as many things away that get in the way of us truly having experience with him. And when you start recovering your life, what you find is, is that you start finding compassion, compassion for yourself, because there's a God who wants to be compassionate with you, who loves you. And then you find that maybe you can even start being compassionate with other people. You also find, like, that's recovery of life, right? Like, finding compassion. But you also find, with reimagining a purpose, that more of you maybe are finding more courage. Like, you're being encouraged by Jesus. You know, you can't just decide to be courageous on your own. You need someone to come alongside of you and say, hey, this could happen. And when we read Jesus, he keeps telling us things that could happen and how you and I will do greater things than he has done. He would make absurd statements like that. And so you're finding that there's this courage, that there's this compassion. Now listen, if we just live with courage without compassion, we become ingrown. And if we live with like courage without compassion, we become mean, <laughs> There's something about having those two together. And when those two come together, though, we have to make a decision to, like, give it out. Because if you don't, you sit on it, and it ends up, like, spoiling. 
Like we're not containers, we're reservoirs. You, you see what I mean there? Like we're not just a place where we try to fill ourselves up and then kind of go do our thing. Like it's meant to spill out. And that means we're also meant to be a compelling people. Like we're meant to be a compassionate and courageous and a compelling people. And that's why we now want to do a 10-month, 40-week series on the book of Acts. And the people said amen. Like you're like, why? Why that long? Why that long? Like, why can't we just kind of like hover over a few things? Well, it's a good question. And let me answer it by first talking about maybe what the book of Acts isn't and is. So there's different ways that people have tried to talk about Acts. One is that we need to look at Acts more like a kind of historical analysis of what happened in the early church. Um, maybe you've heard even people say this, like, like, why doesn't God move like this still? Like, we read it for data and like to give us like more information. But there's almost like a cognitive dissonance that can happen if you read the book of Acts that way. If it's simply just about data and you're seeing what God did then, you start asking the questions like, well, where is he now? Like he must not be involved here. So it can't just be historical. And on top of that, it doesn't even give all the details of the early church. It mainly follows Peter and Paul. And there were obviously other apostles. There were, uh, there, were, there were men and women and house churches and all these things happening. So Luke, the writer, is not trying to give some kind of comprehensive historical analysis. But others have tried to say, well, that maybe the book of Acts is a blueprint to how Christians are to live. Maybe you've even thought that. And you try to read it, and you start thinking like, okay, like, so... Peter's shadow healed somebody. And you're like, well, let me go try that out today. When I was a kid, I used to read Acts that way. And I would go like, okay, to, okay, shadow there. Okay, walk by somebody a couple of times and nothing would happen. And then I'm like, well, this doesn't work, right? I want to quit God. And what happens, a lot of us go, you know what we need to do? We need to get back to the way it was in the first century. Let's go back to early Christianity. Okay, just think about what you just said. Let's go back to being ostracized and hunt down by the Roman Empire. All right, let's go back to living in this kind of third world situation. No, you don't know what you're asking. Stop asking that. All right, you do not want to go back to the way it was in the first century. So it can't simply just be historical and it can't just simply be a blueprint. I, I think what it can be, though, is closer to what um, N.T. Wright talks about. We put it in your bulletin. And by the way, throughout this series, we're going to try to provide different resources for you. And because it's going to be such a long series, you're going to need help along the way, maybe. Um, there's a lot of you in your story groups that are following along with this series by reading Acts every week. That's a great practice. Um, I'm really excited about what our children's ministry is doing. Uh, we have um, a team of people who are committed to curriculum that follows along with what the adults are going through. So every week, the children are going to be reading through different, like the same passages we're reading through, which means parents, like you have something to talk about now. Like when you go home, you can kind of talk through these things with your kids, and, and that's really, really exciting. And so this resource, though, N.T. writes a commentary, and here's what he says. The demonstration of the power of Jesus' name took place not in the temple, but outside the gate. God is on the move not confined within the institution, breaking out into new worlds, leaving behind the shrine which had become a place of worldly power and resistance to his purposes. 
Acts is a book of demonstration. It's a book of Acts. And it's trying to tell us these demonstrations of God. And with that, it's trying to bring compelling narratives telling us that God is on the move and his gospel will always be breaking into new worlds. God is on the move and his gospel, his good news, will always be breaking into new worlds. And friends, this is what we want to explore. Like, what would it mean if we bought into this more demonstrative faith that says, like, God's on the move. Like, Aslan's on the move. Like, things are happening. And you can, like, catch the wave. But here's something that Wright is also kind of inferring with this. And that is, it's breaking out of institutions. And this is what I want us to think about a little bit, because... There's a way to miss out on what God is doing. There is a way to miss out on the flow and the movement in space and time of what God is trying to do in the world. See, the problem is we try to go back to do it the way it was always done there. Instead of picking up that God was doing a new thing there and his spirit brings life and is always trying to bring these like amazing, beautiful movements that are centered and grounded and rooted in love and compassion and courage that's compelling to this world. But there's a chance, there's a way to miss out on it when we are institutionalized. Now, let me just try to unpack this a little bit. Like when I say that we are maybe institutionalized, um, what does that mean? Simply, the word itself, institutionalized, means established in custom or practice. Now, that's not a wrong thing, okay? You're here because of institution, all right? Like, you may say, like, I don't want to be institution. Well, you are, okay, because welcome to church. So this thing is a part of an institution. Institutions aren't wrong, right? Like, institutions help give you your education, whether you like it or not, that's what happened, all right? And institutions are, for a lot of you, even what help provide your work along the way. So we don't have to like say, oh, get away from an all anarchy. It's not that at all. But here's the thing that can happen. You can get so attached to the idea of institution, you become institutionalized. And when this happens, here, here's, here's what I mean with that. With being institutionalized, especially in the church, it ends up being like the norms of a of a lifeless walk with Christ that's been drowned in our incessant need for more assurances. It's almost like we become, it becomes the norm. Like we drown out what God could be doing because we're so insistent, so insistent of tradition, right? Tradition. Tradition's great, tradition. All right, so tradition's great. But you become so consumed with it you become so consumed with it, you drown yourself out because what traditions can provide us is like, like safety from our fear. Because life is scary, is it not? Like you step outside of here and you step into this world, you're like, goodness gracious, there's so much going on. I don't know how to handle it all. I don't know what to do with it all. And a lot of times, we'll, if we're not careful, we'll choose institutionalization over like stepping into something just because things get big. I think this is easy for us 
to happen, like I think it's easy for it to happen to us, and especially I kind of think it happens here. I want to show us a couple of places. Look at verse 3. Um, it's kind of the, the backdrop and wallpaper that's happening in this passage. It says in verse 3, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, keep in mind, institutionalization is when you think you got it all figured out. It's like going, here's all the answers, okay? It's the idea of going, okay, like the Bible is a math book. I answered all the questions, and now I'm good to go, right? So the equations are figured out. Now, here's what Jesus has. He has a bunch of first century Jewish people that have a pretty clear idea from the scriptures of what a Messiah would be like one day. And you have to remember, Messiah, the Christ, like Christ wasn't Jesus' last name. We all understand that now, right? If not, boom, truth. All right, so, so we, he is Jesus the Christ. He is Jesus the Messiah. And the Messiah is political. Like it's not like, oh man, I just really love Jesus Christ. He's so important to me. Like, no, bow a knee to him. The, 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 the new emperor just entered into the room. Like it was about political, social, economical reform. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were hoping for. They weren't just thinking things like, well, let me kind of confess the name and I'll get saved and get out of this world one day. Nope, not what they were thinking in first century. What we're thinking in 21st century, but not what they were thinking in first century. In first century, they were thinking this world is a mess, and what we need is a good, true ruler who is going to come and upheave this Roman Empire and in turn now bring true restoration to all these things. Now, they had a pretty good idea of what a Messiah would be like until they see their Messiah be crucified, a shameful death. And they're like, we bet it on the wrong horse, y'all, right? Like, we really messed this one up. And so then, Drew talked about last week, like they kind of go back to their old ways of fishing, whatever else. Jesus appears. He's like cooking fish, eating it with them, talking through things. He appears to them. It says in, in Luke, uh, at the end of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus walks through a door. Walks through a door, but still eats food. Okay? So I think we've just broken the brain here of, of what a new Messiah would look like. And here's the thing. I love how it says he spent 40 days with them proving himself over and over again. How do you think this went down? Like, it's like Peter going, all right, I need you to walk through that wall one more time. All right, turn around, pirouette. Okay, no, okay, sit down, stand up. Okay, eat food. Uh, no, Thomas, your try. You know what I mean? Like, it's almost like they're going, like, this just can't be. Like, their brains are broke. And they don't know what to do with this kind of new human that is like walking through walls but eating food and so um now we look back on that and we go like well why couldn't you buy into it i mean david blaine does it all the time right like penn and teller i mean i, I watch that stuff and remember you're sitting here as a 21st century person with a lot of privilege in your historical overview people at this time had no category or concept for this so they weren't thinking in terms of like, like even like black, dark magic. They're going like, nobody's doing this. So they're needing their brains repaired every time they're talking with Jesus. 
But here's what's so interesting. They're so sure, they're so sure of what a Messiah would be, they have to keep getting Jesus to prove himself to them. Now, here's the question I think it's kind of handing us. I think this is what it's kind of telling us. That we could be so sure of who God is that we miss God proving himself to us every day. We get so sure of who God is that we're like missing him proving like himself to us every day. That they were having to have him prove himself to them time and time again. And at some point it stuck. Now you may say, listen, if some dude walks through a wall and then eats fish, I'm going to follow him. All right? Like that's what I'm going to do. And you're like, that'd be all the proof I need. Why can't I get that? And you're like, but yeah, but you're, you're living at, at this side of history. And we go, well, God doesn't do that in my life anymore. Really? Like, how many times do we miss out on God because we're so sure of how God's supposed to live and act in our lives? Well, I think that's a product of institutionalization. We get so sure of who we know God to be. We've defined him in the right box, the right categories, the right understanding scripturally. And then we kind of sit there and wait for the experience. But all of those things tend to drown out the possibility of experiencing him when he's on the move. Does that make those things wrong or bad? Nope, not at all. But it makes them not near as important as we want to make them, unless we want to keep missing out on God. So we find here that they're missing out on something because of what they're so sure of. And then it says in verse 5, like Jesus comes back and says, do not leave Jerusalem but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus then is saying to them, I want to give you something. I want to give you a gift. Like, I want you to have this amazing experience, and it can't happen if I stay around here. Listen, I've thought this a lot of times. It would have been a lot easier if Jesus just would have stayed on the earth, and then we all know where to make our pilgrimage, right? We go to Jerusalem. We find the man who rose from the dead, has stayed alive for 2,000 years, and keeps walking through walls. And we go, and this is enough. And so it would have been great to kind of keep it all centered right there. But then Jesus, Jesus understands something. His gospel would not be able to spread throughout all the world if it all had to center in one place. He needed it to move. He needed to move to be on the move. And that meant he needed people to embody something and take it with them. But notice what happens next in, in verse 6. And then it says, They gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? It's like they miss it again. You're the Messiah. And you're supposed to restore all these things because that's what we were told. And Jesus is just going, goodness gracious. Like, just take what I'm giving you. I'm telling you to go get this gift. Instead, you're wanting more answers to all your questions. We want all of our questions resolved. And he is not near as interested in giving us all the answers you may want. He's way more interested in letting you live with a lot more questions. Because questions make us what? Keep going out there and searching. Answers do what? Keep us in our seat and go, I got it. I'm good. I'll move on now. Because then he replies with this in verse 7. 
It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, into the earth. It's almost like he's saying to them, step out of what you think you know. Step out of what you think you have figured out. And step away from your incessant need to control what you're afraid of. Step out of what you think you know. Step out of what you think it's all about. And like, let go of this incessant need to have to always have everything figured out. Because he's saying to them, you, if that's your pursuit, if this is what church is about, you will miss me. I'm not making it up. I'm just reading it. Like, he's like, you're going to miss it if you don't, like, let yourself be reprogrammed and to step out of the confines of how you thought the world was supposed to look and supposed to work. Now, with that said, I want to I kind of address something here and, and talk about it for a minute. With this last sermon series we did, there were a couple of questions that came up regularly for people. I think they're legitimate questions. Um, a couple of questions were, like, what do we believe doctrinally, and um, do we take Scripture seriously? That came out a couple of different times. And here's what I want to say up front. Yes and yes. Like, I think we take doctrine very seriously, and the Bible very seriously. Um, but here's what I think those questions sometimes can come out of. Um, a deep place of almost like anxiety. And, and that's not a wrong thing because you want to know who you're in the bunker with, right? Like you want to know who's got your back and, and who you're doing life with here. But I think as well what those kind of questions can tend to do is they stop us from being in relationship with the person. Like what a lot of people just want is to be like, hey, I'm trying to figure this whole Jesus thing out. I'm doing the best I can with what I'm working with here. And can I do that with you? I think that's a very genuine question a lot of people are asking here. But I think what we tend to do in the front end is go, yeah, but like, let me kind of line this up and get this all cleared up so that I'll have less fear of what kind of relationship this will be. And I think that we're missing out when we approach it that way. That's what I think. I could be wrong. I don't think I am. I could be wrong. I think we end up missing out on more. And listen, I want to be straight up with you. There's a lot of churches, most all churches don't do it this way. And I know you guys are like, can we just not be a unicorn one week? I'm not trying to make us a unicorn. I'm just saying, like, there's a lot of churches like that already. So if that's something a person needs, I can say, I bless that. I understand that. Because I know that we're kind of in this messy middle here. But the messy middle is, is that... I know we got red and blue and left and right and up and down and in and out all together. And I love the mess because I go, I think that's part of the demonstration that we read in Acts. I think that's when, like, you give room for God to show up. And I think because of that, in turn, it makes us take Scripture more seriously. I think we take it incredibly seriously. Because we're reading it and going, how do we do these things? How do we live these ways out? How do we not miss out on what God is doing? I'll give you an example. So I grew up, um, I grew up in a charismatic, fundamental church, which like, just turn on TBN and there you go, all right? And it was a lot of fun, right? It was a lot of fun. 
Um, and also, um, well, let me say this. So I remember when I got into high school, I was 16 years old, 16 years old. All right, keep this in mind. I remember asking my mom one day, I'd met this guy named Derek, um, and Derek's parents owned the only Christian bookstore in the small town I grew up in. And I remember like asking my mom one day, like, mom, can I be friends with Derek? And she's like, what kind of question is this? You're 16, like, just make decisions. What do you mean? And I'm like, well, he doesn't speak in tongues, so I don't really think he's a Christian. And I think, I think all she could have at that moment is just like pure disappointment. Like, what have I done with my life and my child at 16 here? Like, how could this be the case? This is not what I meant to happen. And my mom is here today, and she can attest to it. Okay, so um, I seriously wrestled with that because there was a doctrine of a second infilling of the Holy Spirit with evidence of speaking in tongues. And the belief I had growing up was that only true Christians, well, you know, you're a true Christian, not Baptist or Methodist or something like that, but like true Christian, not even Calvinist. Now, true Christian was, um, do you speak in tongues? I used to, when I'd go on a date, and I'll, I could explain to you then how many dates I had, all right? Um, <laughs> Like, you will pick up on how many dates I did not have. I used to, like, try to screen it and be like, do you speak in tongues? And they're like, uh, no. And I was like, and so at that point, you either could go to, well, do you want to, like, like um, make out? Or do you want me to pray for you to get the Holy Spirit, right? And I would always choose the second path, right? And be like, well, let's just kind of pray over you. And I, I remember one time I put my, <laughs> I was sitting right next to this girl, and I probably shouldn't be preaching about this. It's really weird. So anyway, I was sitting right next to this girl, and then, um, I just put my hands on her forehead and started praying for her, for her to speak in tongues. And I was praying in tongues. I am not joking with this. Sad. I understand. All right? But it is reality. And then I met Suzanne, and Suzanne's like, and that stops now. Uh, so praise the Lord for that. Um, here's the thing. I was so consumed with the doctrines that could make me feel safe with a person. Let me ask you a question. Do you think I was missing out on God at times? I think I was too. I think I was too. And I think that's easy for it to happen, I mean, to all of us here. We get so consumed with how we know that God's supposed to look and work, we miss out on when God is moving because we want to kind of hide behind X, Y, and Z ideas and constructs. And those ideas and constructs, hear me say this, are not wrong, they're not bad. They're part of the institution. It's really important. And yet, when that's the thing we're living our lives by and off and deciding relationships with, we can miss out. And I think the early followers were at this precipice where they almost could miss out because I think these moments we're talking about, these demonstrative moments of the Holy Spirit, of God at work and move, I think one of the markers of it, like one of the tell signs of it, is liminality, like liminal moments. And liminal moments are when you're walking, and it's so sure, and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, there's a step. You ever done that before? Like you think you got it all mapped out, and then all of a sudden you hit and you trip for a second. It's a liminal moment. I think life was meant to have a lot more liminal moments than what we're allowing it to happen. Because I think in those liminal moments, we have to go like, oh, let me question something here. Oh, let me kind of put this back on the table. 
is it's like a roller coaster that's safe, okay? Like sometimes you're like, are we just on a roller coaster that's like eventually going to end and then we fly off, you know, at Six Flags? I'm like, maybe, but no, it's not going to happen. No, it's, it's meant to have these moments that's like takes your breath away. Let me ask you, when's the last time you had your breath taken away with Jesus? When's the last time you got to experience something with God that took your breath away? That he just got to surprise you? And has it been that long, not because God's abandoned you, or not because you don't buy into the right things, or you were at the wrong church, but we just got so caught up in how we knew God was supposed to work that we kept missing him, proving himself to us over and over and over again. So talking about liminal moments, we're going to read verse 9, but I'm going to need some help with verse 9. So I've asked, who's it going to be here? All right, Phoebe Rowland. Would y'all give a hand for Phoebe Rowland? Please come stand right here. You can't show up to him just yet, okay? No, hold on, hold on. All right, so I mentioned to you um, that Christ City Kids, they're like following along with this, and they're doing arts and crafts to help kind of reinforce the message. And um, they had an art and craft today that I just had to show off to you all. Now, here's the thing. I want you to see this. You're going to be more amazed by this than if Jesus walked through a wall. That's first going to happen. Second thing is you're going to reconsider the purpose of your life and why you aren't serving in CCK from time to time. All right? So just to plug us this, thank you very much. The plug us this. Once you see this, I need 10 people to fall out in the spirit and commit to going and serving in CCK starting next week. All right? Here we go. Uh, connect cards are right in front of you. Thank you. I'm not joking. All right. Are you ready? So here's the verse. How do, let's, let's kind of do this dramatically. Um, all right. So put Jesus down. Okay. Let him down. Let him down, like here. There you go. Okay, there's Jesus. There's Jesus. And all the disciples are down. Let's turn Jesus around. He's like doing like this weird hug thing, like, hey, what's up? Okay. All right, so here's Jesus. Verse 9. You got to work with me, okay. Um, After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Look at that, huh? Isn't that fun? You want to keep it? Okay. Come on now. Solo scriptura and solo cup. All right. Still hasn't landed with the joke I wanted. Okay. All right. <laughs> liminal moments. Is it fair to say that was a liminal moment? If you see a dude or a woman talking to you and they start levitating, and then they keep going up higher and higher. At some point, are you going like, this is just breaking the brain? Like, there's no construct or category for this one, right? I think that was kind of part of it. Jesus is such a showman at times, right? Like, I love that about him. I love that he realizes, like, there's a striking point for him to emphasize. He could have just been like, I'm going to go behind this rock, peace. And they go look behind the rock. Then it would have been a magic act. There's no magic act when you disappear into the cloud and haven't, like, physically been around in 2,000 years. Okay, so, like, this is a little moment, and what we're finding is that um, everything that they were stressing over about what is about life was stopping, and they started moving into what if. 
which takes us to the title of the sermon, Living in a, in a What-If World. Um, every, the first Tuesday of every month, we do formational staff meeting with food, and a lot of times it's fun, and our very own Drew Haltom leads that. And, uh, and Drew uh, found a, a, a clip of a, a pastor's name, Erwin McManus, and, and he was asking this question about um, moving from what is to what if. And I just, when I saw it, I was like, ah, taking that, and that's the sermon, right? Because <laughs> it was just so spot on. Like, I think so many of us, the way you know you're institutionalized is everything is about what is. Like, what is truth? What does the Bible say? What is the answer to all these questions? What is, what is, what is, what is? What is this relationship? What is, defining it, what is? Like, everything's about what is. And I think at this moment of him ascending into heaven, they're left with like a lot more like, well, what if? Like, just what if the world's changed? Like, what if things are different? And then the what if questions start leading to not what is like, what is, I am an addict. Now it becomes what if, what if I could be set free? Well, what is, like, like I'm just skewed and cynical because life and faith hasn't worked out. And then what if becomes, and what if that could change? Like, what is, is this is the disease, this is the impairment to my body that I've had to carry for so long, and now it becomes like, but what if I could be healed? And this whole book of Acts is about asking the questions, what if? What if there was a God on the move that you could interact with and that he guarantees you change? See, I don't think we've been risky enough. Some of you are like, we're being too risky with this whole thing we're trying to do with whether it's partnership, whatever else. I'm like, oh, trust me, not risky enough. Please don't leave the church yet. Okay, not risky enough. Here's why. Because God is about the business of what if. No other person in history is like Jesus where he makes these claims that if you come to me, I'll give you your life back. That if you go away and go astray, I will go and find you. He makes those guarantees. And we're the ones that can miss out of those guarantees when we're so sure of how he's supposed to look and work. And he's like, no, like, I guarantee you, you can recover your life. And I guarantee you, you could have your purpose, like, reimagined. And I guarantee you, your life could be such a reservoir that others are refreshed by it. What if? I was thinking about what if in this, from Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, this part of the, of the book came up to me. I just want to share it. It says, they say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he's already landed. Now, a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand. But in the dream, it feels as if it had some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. 
At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling that you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. God is on the move, friends. And he wants to do something in your life. He wants to reinvigorate you. And here's the thing, like we don't, we're going to try different things here at church. Like we're not going to have a place where like, come forward and let me kind of knock you out in the spirit. No, like, I mean, there's money to made off that, but no, that's not it. I'm talking about things like, hey, are, are you desperate enough to be needy enough to go like, I want to find and interact with this God again? If so, I, I think you're at the right place. And if so, I think the next 40 weeks make sense. So the question is this, what do we do with all this? And I think the passage tells us, let me just read it here. It says, verse 12, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying and they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and all his brothers. I love how it says it in the message. It goes, they agreed they were in this for good, completely together. The, the word that's used in the Greek for in this for good, joined together, is a made-up word in the New Testament. It's used 11 times and 10 of those in the book of Acts. And it's two words put together. The word is homothumadon. Homothumadon. Homo, the word same, thumadon, fierce. Like, same, fierce. And you're like, well, that sounds weird. How about this? This is how one... One commentator was trying to put it into words, rush along in unity. It's rushing along in unison. Like that's what's happening here for them. What do you do now? You rush along together in unison. With who? Whoever's wanting to do this thing with you. For how long? No clue. Until the ride ends. Until he comes back down from the solo cup. I don't know. So what does this look like? I think it looks like us coming together in unison. And that doesn't mean uniformity. That doesn't mean sameness. What it means is, that, and, and again, this is where I go back to, like, come here as they go. It's almost like saying it's an orchestra, and there's different instruments. And you got horns. I mean, you got, like, trumpets and trombones and French horns. You got, like, wood instruments. You got percussion. You got strings. And if one person tries to go solo, it sounds weird. But when everybody starts listening to one another and trying to harmonize with one another, all of a sudden you get something so big and so beautiful that it is overwhelmingly refreshing to those who hear it. This is what we can do together. Let's pray. So we now come before your table, Lord, and we're reminded that because of you, we now can. Because of what is you, Jesus, we now can live with what if. And that what if is what if our lives could change and what if this world could be refreshed and what if we get to be a part of that. So we pray now that you would meet us as go to the table. We love you. In the name we pray.
Amen.